Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so that you can save more, spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Speaking of ripoffs, there's one that is happening all too often right now. You try to hire someone who you think is really working for you to help you with your retirement, investment, whatever, and it turns out they're not really working for you. I'm going to tell you what to look for, what to look out for later this hour. Clark.com is our main web address, and Clark.com slash ask is where you go to ask me questions. You have a question you want to get answered, don't necessarily care if you talk to me, great. You can talk with a member of our team, that's free. You can see the phone number and hours available for free off-the-air advice. If you scroll down a little bit on Clark.com. I'm going to talk about something that has me really concerned And that is you, if you are a homeowner, not having sufficient homeowner's insurance coverage. This has just come up again as an issue in the California fires. And I want to tell you where the problem is that you could face, regardless of where you live in the country, is that you have a homeowner's insurance policy that states a value on your home. And that value could be very dated. So your home receives a substantial or total loss, could be for any of a number of different things, and you go to rebuild, and that's when you find out you are left exposed, and it can be for huge money. I remember the last time I got a call from a homeowner about this, the homeowner was upset that their homeowner's insurance premiums had gone up because our caller's insurer had said, sorry, your house is going to cost more to rebuild than what you had coverage for. We raised your coverage. And the caller to me was upset and wanted me to tell him how to fight back. And I was like, no, 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 no. Your insurer did something most insurers won't do that is actually a benefit for you, giving you the ability to be able to fully cover the cost of rebuild. So if you have not looked in a number of years, and especially if there's been a run-up in home values in your area since you bought your home, When your homeowner's insurance comes up at renewal time, look and see what coverages you have on that declaration they'll send you with the bill, how much they're valuing your home at, and know that the cost of a partial rebuild is huge per square foot. If, let's say, you had a a kitchen fire and part of your home's damaged and you have to rebuild it, you've got to make sure you're not underinsured Because even something that's a partial could end up causing significant amounts of money to come out of your pocket. So remember this, check it, even if it means you're going to have to pay more on your homeowner's insurance. One more thing I wanted to mention with homeowner's insurance. When I went to Florida in the aftermath of Hurricane Irma, 
and did TV and radio in Florida for three days. One of the things that came up repeatedly from people who had claims they needed to deal with is that contractors were trying to get them to do AOBs. And I've talked about AOBs on the air before. Fortunately, they are not legal everywhere in the country, but AOBs are assignment of benefits. And that's where you, when you hire a contractor to repair your home with anything that is an insurable claim, the AOB allows you to assign your rights to the contractor. Well, when you assign those rights, you are putting yourself in harm's way big time. And the insurer is in a weakened position. They're not dealing with their insured anymore. They're dealing with a contractor who may or may not do the work that you want done as a homeowner. And they may bill far more than what would be reasonable for your insurer to pay. Well, generally, when you assign your benefit, the insurer pays what they're going to pay, and then with you having no say-so, you get balance billed. I know of no circumstance where you, after a problem happens with your home, whether from a natural disaster or anything else, that you ever want to do an AOB, an assignment of benefit, to a contractor doing work at your home. Don't give up your power. You may regret it later with a huge hit to your wallet and potentially substandard or incomplete work at your home. Gosh, that was a lot of negativity about home insurance, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Tyler's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Tyler. Hey, Clark. What's going on, Tyler? Uh, so I'm just calling to tell you about uh, a flight that I bought to get out of uh, the path of Hurricane Irma, and um, our flight cost like $1,000, and I've been keeping up with it uh, over the last couple weeks, and the regular price is like $457, and I tried contacting the company to get some of that price refunded, or um, even if it was just like a a credit towards future flights and they're unwilling to work with me. And so Which airline are you to... involved with? I'm sorry? Which airline was it that gouged you on the uh, hurricane evacuation flight? It was Delta. Right. Now, Delta got enormous blast of negative publicity when they were charging people up to a couple of thousand dollars who were trying to evacuate in the face of the onslaught of Hurricane Irma. And Delta then made amends and reduced the fares, put in a price cap, and JetBlue did it first. JetBlue made the fare, was it $50 for people to evacuate Florida? And Delta came back and came up with a cap that I felt was $299, but I can't remember what the price was. And I don't remember Delta saying they were going to refund money to people that they had gouged evacuating. Have you been able to see anything where Delta publicly said they were going to refund to people they gouged? I have not seen anything. Um, But also, I wonder if part of it, too, was that I was in another country when it happened. 
I was in the Dominican at the time. I'm sorry, it was three ninety nine for Southern Florida and Caribbean flights. Okay. They said yeah, that, no, it, said that that will be the it. maximum. Uh, the price cap will apply to all seats, including first class. And it was after JetBlue's move. So uh, the price caps were in effect through September 13th. And I don't see anything in the release what they were doing for people they had already gouged. So I'll tell you what, we will we'll talk to Delta and find out what they what their policy actually is for people that they gouged before they got all the bad publicity. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, Clark. Because I, I was I at the time you were in the Caribbean so you didn't know. I went berserk on the air as the hurricane oh, yeah. was approaching and the reports came out about Delta gouging. I mean, I went crazy on the air. And then I was so relieved when it wasn't just me. They were getting bad publicity all over the place. And they came up with this price cap. And it never occurred to me at the time that they weren't going to automatically refund money to people they had already gouged. So, Tyler, hang on, because we need to know how to reach you later, and we will get the answer for you. Okay, thank you. And I hope that airlines have learned a good lesson from what happened in this case. The airlines, and it wasn't just Delta, the airlines allege that those systems are completely automated, and their systems knew no other way with the code written but to, as people started booking quickly on those flights, to c- continually raise the fares to many thousands of dollars and what's known as dynamic demand pricing. And then they had to go in and limit that with the price caps. And so that's the explanation. And I'm going to find out for Tyler and others what they're going to do about the people who got gouged before the reign of bad publicity came in. Frank is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Frank. Hey, Clark. How you doing? Great. Thank you, Frank. Um, uh, the question I have is about my 12-year-old son. He's, uh, I call him the money man. He's always trying to make money. He's always looking for ways to make money. And I've only got so much money to give him. So I'm trying to help him uh, expand his um, entrepreneurship. And he's done lemonade stands and raking leaves and lawn mowing. But the next thing he's looking to do is to sell ice cream from a cart. And uh, I was willing to, I found a cart on Craigslist that I was going to purchase for him. But I was concerned about where I could let him set this up or if there was some types of regulations um, that would come into play for this. What a great question because this keeps coming up with uh with the rules in different jurisdictions and then Mm -hmm. how kids are treated and kids that have been cited and i mean just craziness that's happened with kids setting up lemonade stands this is the first call Mm -hmm. i've ever had though about a kid setting up an ice cream cart so (laughs) as far as setting up an ice cream cart do you live in an urban suburban or rural area uh, well, I'm in upstate New York, so we're, we're rural. Okay. So 
New York, you know, tends to be pretty regulatory minded. Mm -hmm. And are are you thinking that he'll be selling within the corporate limits of a city or in an unincorporated area of a county in upstate? That would be a, a county. We're not going to be in uh, New York City at all. No, I mean, no, we're not it, both. but even where, where your 12-year-old will be selling, mm-hmm. is it within a city limits or is it just in a rural uh, area, no city right there? Like, so you going to be selling in shopping centers? What are you thinking? Uh, I was thinking up at like um, the st- the state parks and beaches for him. Ah, so you mm-hmm. start selling on uh, parkland. That's a whole different thing. He's okay. not going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But some of the things you should look at, and where kids have been really successful, is when you go to a, an unrelated business and set up. On their property. Like, let's say okay. there's there's a gas station on the way mm-hmm. into a park that has a lot of traffic on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And your son can pay rent to the owner of the station to be able okay. to set up there or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as far as where I, why I was asking those crazy questions about jurisdiction yeah. is that as a father, you should call the county and find out what's required to have a vendor's permit okay and there may not be one required for a minor child all right but you want to find out that in advance okay and then normally he's going to do best if he's somewhere with it's highly trafficked but Mm -hmm. what he's doing is not central to what that business does and there's right. an opportunity for him. And who knows, he may even attract business for that business. I see. Okay. But I love the entrepreneurship. I have a son like that, and he had set up a, um, a store at the beach last summer. Mm-hmm. And police officer came to see him. <laughs> and we were watching, and we thought he was going to be told he had to take down his store. Right. Yeah. And he was actually at the foot of our driveway and he was not required to take it down oh great so we thought he was going to get an unfriendly message but fortunately that didn't happen joel joins us on the clark howard show and joel you have a credit card with an annual fee and you're like why why should i keep this right right Thanks, thanks, Clark, for taking my call. I really love your radio show and Thank your podcast you. and newsletter and books. Wow. And I know usually these uh, cards are associated with airlines and hotels and warehouse clubs, and I'm just wondering, do you recommend any of them? So the annual fee cards work if your charge volume is sufficient that you overcome the annual fee. And the truth is most people who have one of the airline cards or hotel cards don't have enough charge volume to make it worth it. And so generally, you want to, let's take the airline cards. You want to be someone who flies that airline six times a year or more, and you want to have annual charge volume on the card of $50,000 or more to make the cards worth having. So that, I eliminated almost everybody 
who pays the annual fees right now on an airline card. Right. So the card you have, what kind of annual fee does it have? Well, it's a hotel card, so I think it's $85 a year. And how many free nights are you effectively able to get out of that card each year? Well, there's a sign-up bonus, which helped a lot, so probably about three nights there. But then annually you get a, an anniversary night for re-signing up. So you're, you know, I spend, for my average hotel room per year, I'm spending less than 85, but most people are spending more than 85. In fact, about 120 now. So if you really make use of that free night, you're a little ahead paying that annual fee, plus any other points you get are kind of a bonus on top. So that one's kind of a wash. You decide. It's wonderful to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. ClarkDeals.com is one way we try to help you keep more of what you make by giving you great deals that we go out there and look for and find for you. And Clark.com, our main website. So I think that there's some really weird stuff going on as people become more aware of some language, as an example, fee only. That's a term that's becoming more and more clear to more and more people, is when you are hiring somebody to give you financial advice, if you choose to hire somebody, you want them to be fee only, meaning they are there working for you. No conflicts. But Jason Zweig, the incredible investment writer, says that now there are a number of people who are pretending they are fee-only, charging you a fee, and then while they're smiling at you, stabbing you in the back, still taking commissions for products they recommend to you, which is a complete violation of the whole concept of what fee-only is supposed to be about. And this is rotten. In fact, one in nine people pretending to be fee-only are not. So that means most are doing it right. But you still got a chance, a pretty meaningful one, that you could hire somebody believing he or she is working for you. You're paying them for that privilege. And then it turns out that they're playing both sides of the deal, charging you for what's supposed to be unbiased advice and then taking advantage. Now, how would you be able to ferret that out? Well, if somebody is fee-only and declares themselves to be a fiduciary, you're not going to have a problem. And that's the easiest way for you to make sure you're with somebody who is truly doing what's best for you. A fee-only fiduciary. And what fiduciary simply means is legally, they are taking on the obligation of doing what's only best for you. Unfortunately, all too often we deal with people who may be very nice and may talk a good game, but they are not doing 
what's in your best interest. And I wanted to deal with some of the noise that's taken place over the last four days with uh, what are known as political trial balloons being floated to eliminate 401ks. And that's really how the story has been portrayed. Now, what really is going on behind the scenes is in order to pay for the tax cuts that the Republicans in the House and Senate are trying to come up with, they have to come up with ways to cut tax breaks back elsewhere. And one of them that has been eyed is the 401k deduction that people take in a traditional 401k. And if, in fact, that ended up being adopted, President Trump has tweeted, it's not going to happen, don't worry. But if it had proceeded, all it would have meant is that you would have done a Roth 401k instead of a traditional. So you'd get no upfront tax benefit, but the advantage down the road is all the money you'd have in your 401k, the contributions you make and the earnings would flow to you tax-free. And that's, for many people, the better choice anyway if you're given a choice of both where you work. So it was not the Armageddon to saving for retirement that was in the headlines. And actually, it gives me another opportunity to say, for most people, when you set up what you're going to do for next year with your employer, if you're offered a 401k where you work and you're given the option of a traditional or a Roth 401k, everyone except the highest income earners, but especially anybody under 45, benefits mightily over time doing a Roth 401k rather than the traditional. Kara is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Kara. Hey, Clark, how are you? Great, thank you, Kara. You got a question for me about my love of the dollar stores. A friend, yes, a friend of mine told me that all food items at grocery stores do not need to be FDA approved. I find that very hard to believe. Well, that's true. The FDA is not involved with most food items that are in a store, even though it's the Food and Drug Administration. The responsibilities are shared by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, state health departments, and with a small number of items, the FDA. So food safety is really split among various regulators at both the state and federal level. And so it is true that the supermarkets are not being overseen with a fine-tooth comb by the FDA. And today you can buy food most anywhere, and that's true wherever you'd be buying food. No kidding. Yeah, I, I just, you know, and I tried Googling the question, and nothing came up on it. Really? So, so I'm Google. <laughs> I love that. I'm the new Google. Yes, you are. And they've already taken the name Frugal, so I can't call myself Frugal. <laughs> so we'll have to come up with something else like that. So who oversees our food safety then? It totally depends on the food item itself. And besides, let's take um, produce. 
only a very limited amount of produce is ever inspected. Um, meat, let's say, you know, slaughterhouses and all that. There's uh, random samples taken, and there are plant inspections that take place, but not every single thing you buy is inspected. Now, the big players in the business are doing their own inspections. Mm. So the big supermarket chains, the big warehouse clubs, they have, um, depending on the operator, they have from very robust internal inspection procedures and protocols to just, uh, just they're going through the motions of it. Mm. So yeah, I- there is no, like overriding federal agency that inspects item by item everything that you're buying and eating. Hmm. Okay, well, that that answers my question. But the good news, the food supply in the supermarkets and the warehouse clubs and most anywhere you'd buy food, incredibly safe. The one area that people are nervous about are the grocerants. Do you know what a grocerant is? No. That's where the supermarkets are selling more and more prepared foods. And that's an area there's been some buzz about is making sure that the food being prepared inside a grocery store is being done to the vigorous high standards it should be and that somebody is looking out for that which is usually the local level health department you know county or city health department so there's there's no like overriding this is how food is checked to make sure it's okay in the united states it is an alphabet soup of agencies that are involved and The good news is that the food supply in the United States is almost certainly the safest it's ever been. Mark is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Mark. Hello, Clark. How are you? Great. Thank you, Mark. So you got your mom who's come to hang out with you. (laughs) Yeah, finally. Um, We finally get to be able to take care of her for a change after all she did for us over the years. Well, that's wonderful. Well, last Christmas she fell and broke her hip. Oh, I'm and sorry. So she had been living on her own, and um, we decided, along with her, that you know she probably needed to be with someone or assisted living or something like that. And we were more than happy to take her in with us. Of course, that moved her a thousand miles away from her home, um, but that's fine. She's getting used to it. And where was um, she living, and where's she living now? She was in Minnesota. And now she's in Mississippi. Wow. So she's not going to have cold winters anymore. <laughs> that's right. We told her that's a benefit. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, how can I be of service? Well, um, she is, you know, used to paying rent all these years um, in under her apartment and stuff. And now she is wanting to, um, you know, help us with, uh, you know, with that rent payment, so to speak. Um, she sees all that we do for her, you know, all the errands we run for her and get her to the doctor and all that kind of thing. And um, she's wanting to pay us monthly, you know, a certain amount. Can to, she afford that? She can. 
Yeah. Okay, so and she can she afford is- it. I've got an idea how you would do it. Okay. So how much of the square footage of your home does she occupy? Um, well, she has, the, of course, the whole run of the home, but her bedroom is, you know, it's probably a couple hundred square feet. And how big's your home? About 2,400 square feet. So let's say she's occupying 10% of the home mm-hmm. on a full-time basis. You could charge her uh, 10% of what your mortgage is per month if you wanted to, or um, charge her that plus an additional amount for having free roam of the kitchen and living room and all that. I mean, it's all a matter of what you're trying to accomplish here. Yeah, I'm just. I guess my question, my real question is, uh, are there any tax ramifications with her living here and paying? She's uh, allowed to you know, give a, a monthly. Well, the easiest way to look at it is you don't do a formal lease. Yeah. She's allowed to give you fourteen thousand dollars in a year. Right. And there's no harm, no foul. The IRS isn't involved. There's no income for you to report. Nothing. Right. Rent's and not deductible end. for her anyway. As yeah. long as y'all agree to an amount less than fourteen thousand, you're good. Okay, and that's what I was thinking too. And I'm well aware of the fourteen thousand figure, and uh, that's kind of what how I was going on it. But I wanted to call and make sure that uh, I'm very I was on comfortable the right page. with that. Just don't put any agreement in writing. Just that that's your understanding, right? Since and also, doing I'm it doing all her finances and in investing in that kind of thing. I'm taking care of all of that stuff as well. Well, that's great that you're helping her out. And my dad always said 10 kids couldn't take care of one parent, but you're proving that wrong. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Zan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. How you doing? Doing good, Clark. Appreciate you taking my call. Absolutely. You are interested in building money for your future. Good job. Baby steps, but... My question is, so I know I use Betterment for, you know, a number of different things, but one of the things they offer is kind of more short-term savings. And I know there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, the market keeps going up and up and up, and it's due to it's due for a decline at some point and this and that. So I just know what your thoughts were on these. Uh, now, I know they tend to be more heavy in bonds with Betterment and things like that, but what your thoughts were for – Maybe if you're saving for a car in three years or engagement rings or, you know, short-term. Wonderful question. Those kind of things. Okay. So when you're looking at a goal that is seven years or less, it changes the strategy about what you're up to. And when you move under five years, 
you're no longer an investor for those things. You're only a saver. Okay. Because, because there's too much risk if you're looking at, um, let's say you mentioned buying a car, let's say in three years. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to buy a car in three years, in a three-year window, you could have a stock market decline of as much as 50%. And that's that's common, and it's not a bad thing. It's how it works, is that yep. markets overshoot on the upside, they overshoot on the downside. So in shorter windows, you the markets can be really volatile, and some money like that just needs to be like putting into an online savings account. We just keep okay. building up so that you have the money for it. You're not going to earn much. You're going to earn like one and a quarter percent, 1.35 percent. But the money's there. And when you need it, you have it on two days notice. Okay. When you start looking out past seven years, then you're absolutely in investment territory. And the difference is, if you're looking 20, 30 years down the road and more, you're overwhelmingly in stock type choices. As you get shorter and shorter time periods from seven, let's say, to 20 years, then there's a more conservative portfolio that you want, but it would also have a lot of stocks in it. So when they and then when they start talking to you about the difference between these, like the stocks and bonds, I mean, the bonds, are they just as fluctu- fluctuate as much as stocks or what? Uh... Historically, no. Uh, bonds are historically less volatile. Bonds are significantly historically less volatile than stocks. But in recent years, because of the Federal Reserve to try to save the economy, holding interest rates so artificially low, bonds Mm -hmm. are more risky than they used to be. They're not as risky as stocks, but they're more so. So, you know, if you were to go heavily into a bond portfolio for shorter term goals there'd still be downside risk with it oh gosh so there are things people do as an example people will go in what's called a short or an ultra short which is a bond fund that isn't going to earn as much as a normal bond fund but has much less downside risk than a normal bond portfolio okay so, okay. so there are All ways right. that people can stay at least invested somewhat and lower the yeah. risk, but have it's your money st- do a little work. But it still has a little risk. Okay, so you got to decide. Now, I I am uh, someone willing to take more risk than most people, and I have uh, tax issues, so I do a short municipal bond fund where I take the risk that I could in the short term, lose a little bit of money, not any significant amount, but earn more than I would in any kind of savings account or CD. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for tuning in to The Clark Howard Show today. And if you're like me, you like deals, well, we got our deal diggers hard at work at ClarkDeals.com that help you save money day in and day out We work around the clock to find the best deals for your wallet, and they're on a variety of consumer items. Check out ClarkDeals.com.